Welcome to the Impact 360 Institute podcast, where our goal is to explore biblical worldview and servant leadership to equip you for everyday influence. Here's your host, author and director of cultural engagement, Jonathan Morrow. Well, welcome to the Impact 360 Institute podcast. What does the conversation about faith and science reveal about God? And how can we have a better conversation about that? So today, I'm excited to talk with Melissa Kane Travis and about her new book, Science in the Mind of the Maker, What the Conversation Between Faith and Science Reveals About God. Now, she is a professor of apologetics at Houston Baptist University, a contributing writer for Christian Research Journal, and a homeschooling mom. She's dedicated to exploring the science, theology, and philosophy behind the origins debate, which is so important. And she's the author of three books in the Young Defenders Apologetic Storybook series, as well as the book we are discussing today, Science in the Mind of the Maker. So, Melissa, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for the invitation. I'm glad to be with you. Awesome. Well, first, I guess, tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of your journey and how that came into kind of ending up with this book that I'm holding in my hand right now. So kind of talk a little bit about what what got you interested and kind of that process. Yeah, sometimes I joke that my ministry interests and my academic life was first inspired by a Donald Duck cartoon when I was like seven or eight years old. Nice. There was this cartoon that would come on the Disney Channel back then. And this is way, way back in the early 80s when cable TV was a huge novelty. So we had this thing called the Disney Channel that, of course, would thrill a seven or eight year old little kid. Right. And there was this mm-hmm. Donald Duck cartoon that would come on periodically called Donald in Mathematic Land. You can actually watch it for free on YouTube now. It was written like way back in the 1950s, back when it wasn't a taboo thing for a Disney cartoon to talk about God. And so there was Donald Duck exploring the world of mathematics and how mathematics maps onto the physical world and manifests in things like botany and music and all the different physical sciences. And I was utterly captivated. And at the very end of this cartoon, the narrator gives this famous quote from Galileo where he said, mathematics is the language in which God has written the universe. And so from there on out, I just loved the idea that God can be clearly seen in nature, just like Romans 1.20 tells us. So I loved science throughout all of my grade school years. I grew up in a small town in North Carolina. I attended a Christian university. So I was essentially in a Christian bubble through all these formative years. And I was only very vaguely aware that there were people out there that see a tension between Christianity and the natural sciences. So then fast forward, I finished my undergraduate degree in biology. I'm a newlywed. My husband and I moved to Houston, Texas, and I went to work for the first time as a research associate in the biotechnology industry. And so that was my baptism by fire, I guess you could call it, in terms of getting to know people with science backgrounds who were actually from a wide diversity of worldviews. This was brand new for me because I had been in that Christian bubble for 22 years. So we had lots of interesting conversations about the big questions while sitting belly up to our lab benches day in and day out. And it was during that time, several years of that, 
that I was hit with this alarming realization about myself that despite being a cradle Christian with a degree in one of the natural sciences, I was not at all prepared to answer some of the deeper philosophical and theological questions that come up in dialogue about science and faith, especially when that dialogue is with a non-believer. So long story short from that point, the Holy Spirit led me to the works of a few eminent Christian apologists, and I began doing some independent study just so I could have better conversations and more competent answers to some of these questions I kept hearing. Um, and I had a special focus on the origin sciences because that was the line of work I did and that was my educational background. And in hindsight, I look back on all those years and it's just crazy to me that despite growing up in a Christian home, in a conservative Christian community, attending a conservative Christian university, I didn't even become aware of the field of apologetics. I never heard the term apologetics until I was 23 years old. And um, wow. the rest is history, but it has definitely lit a fire in me, especially when it comes to our responsibility to the up and coming generation when it comes to educating them on the existence of Christian apologetics, how it can be used to have great conversations. And in my case, especially about the faith and science conversation. That's such a great story. It's fun to always hear how God in his providence just kind of weaves different themes together in people's lives that gives them interests and background and experiences that then prepares them for something next that he's going to do, which is so fun, like a book like this. And I totally agree. This is such a major topic. It's one of the things we talk a lot about with our Impact 360 students and whether it's summer experiences or our fellows, just how does God relate to science? It's such a big question and they need people to help shepherd them. And I really appreciate kind of the ground you've covered in your book here, Science and the Mind of the Maker. But why don't you just start with this? Maybe, you know, you've got lots of different chapters, but I'm just going to kind of hit some highlights of these and just kind of ask you and interact with you around them. But maybe give us a little lay of the land on this whole science and faith conversation. You kind of unpack that in chapter one, but what are the things that we need to be aware of in this conversation? Gosh, that's a big question. Um, and there's a whole lot that could be said about that. I think that Christians and non-Christians alike tend to be under this misperception that when we're talking about science and faith, all that really means is can we reconcile the Genesis creation account with modern scientific theory? And that is just a tiny, tiny, tiny part of what this conversation is really all about. We can delve into the history of science and how scientific thought has interacted with Christendom historically. We can look at the field of physics and ask questions about whether or not it supports the Christian teaching that the universe had an ultimate beginning or whether or not the universe exhibits indications of design. We can look at biology and biochemistry, and we can ask similar questions about signs of design. We can look at the earth sciences and ask questions about whether or not there are indications that we were intended and that we're not just cosmic accidents that happen to show up on this little tiny speck of rock in the vastness of the greater universe. So there are all sorts of areas that we can explore. And what my goal in my book was, was to introduce 
many of these different fields and explain to the reader how they all tend to converge on some of the central Christian truth claims, specifically the existence of God and the kind of thing mankind is. Are we um, just sophisticated ape-like creatures that are here by accident, or is there indication that we were meant to be here and there's something very special about us that allows us to be able to investigate the natural world with great success. I think that's awesome. And I know you cover a ton of ground in this book and in really clear ways, kind of help the reader kind of understand and see all the different kinds of fun questions, you know, that we can ask about God and his world and his two books, right? You know, special revelation, general revelation, and how those relate to one another. Um, maybe talk a little bit about this. You know, sometimes people let's take some particular things like someone might say, well, mathematics, for example, like how does that apply to this whole conversation? And is that something that actually is for or against Christianity? And how does that relate to that conversation? You know, a lot of people are surprised to hear me talk about having a fascination with mathematics and science and Christianity, all three things together. Um, it turns out that the mathematical sciences, which basically all the natural sciences interact with mathematics in one way or another, and quite thoroughly and deeply as well. And it turns out that this presents a very interesting set of interconnected problems for the worldview of naturalism. So one of those problems is the fact that mathematics has this incredible applicability to the natural world. So the fact that mathematical systems, which are constructed in the human mind. Now, I'm not saying that mathematical truths are invented. That's a different thing. What I'm saying is the mathematical systems that scientists have devised in order to apply them to the kind of work that they do, those systems are constructed by the human mind. But in order for them to be effective, they have to be able to map onto the material stuff we're studying with a very high degree of precision. And it turns out that they actually do. Now, there was a landmark essay written about this crazy situation by this agnostic Hungarian theoretical physicist named Eugene Wigner, and his essay was published back in 1960. He called this applicability of mathematics to nature something mysterious, and he even used the word miraculous. He, he said, this is something we cannot explain scientifically, but we should be incredibly grateful for it because if this were not the situation we found ourselves in, science would have been impossible. So here we are 60 years later, and physicists and philosophers, both theists and non-theists, are still talking about this problem, about mathematics mapping onto the physical world. Roger Penrose and Max Tegmark are two physicists in particular who've discussed this at length in their writing, both their academic writing and their popular level writing, and both of them are non-theists. And then we have guys like John Polkinghorne. He's a retired physicist who turned Anglican priest. He's also written quite a bit about how remarkable it is that mathematics is so effective in the natural sciences. And then our second problem is the fact that we as human beings have this intellectual capacity to carry out 
the highly sophisticated mathematics that's involved in scientific fields like theoretical physics or like biochemistry or like genetics. And that raises questions in areas such as evolutionary biology, as well as philosophy of mind. So we have some philosophers who are arguing that if naturalism were true, if the worldview of naturalism were correct, then our kind of human rationality would have been impossible. In other words, if the workings of our mind were merely the result of our neurons operating according to blind processes of physics and chemistry, there would not be any such thing as genuine rationality. We wouldn't have the freedom, the mental freedom necessary to work through advanced mathematics and then turn around and make judgments about how to apply mathematics to scientific inquiry. If any of your listeners are familiar with C.S. Lewis's book, Miracles, um, the revised edition of that book, he actually hints towards the problem that I was just talking about when he explains what we call the argument from reason. And it's interesting that the revised edition of that book came out the exact same year that Eugene Wigner's famous essay did. I just think that's a neat quirk of history. So the bottom line question is, I think, why is the cosmos so thoroughly rational? And why are there creatures with the intellect and the free agency that are required for doing science, for discovering the mathematical structure of the universe? And the answers that have been put forward by proponents of naturalism fall very far short. They end up offering just lots of brute answers like, oh, well, this is just the way it is. And there isn't an explanation, and it's kind of silly to look for an explanation, but Christian theism offers a much more intellectually satisfying explanation that behind all of this that we're observing, there is an ultimate mind that transcends all of it and is responsible for its design. Absolutely. I think that's a fabulous answer to that question. And just a reminder for our listeners, naturalism is a worldview that assumes that all you can know about reality is really, it's all reduced to physics, chemistry, biology, genetics. And so the question is, where do you get reason and all that stuff? And as you just so beautifully articulated, you know, math in, in, a, in a very interesting and fun way is an argument for the existence of a creator and a massive problem for naturalism to explain as a worldview. And so I think that's a great understanding and explanation of, of that. There's one of those phrases in your, in your book, you talk about cosmic resonance. Say a little bit more about that phrase and kind of, kind of what you're trying to do with that phrase. Yeah. So um, I've kind of hinted towards it and around it, I guess, in what we've talked about so far. What I mean by this phrase, cosmic resonance, is that the enormous success of the scientific enterprise in unlocking nature's secrets strongly implies that there is a maker who wants to share some of his mind with us, creatures made in his image. So it looks very much, when we observe the world, as if one of the main goals of the development of everything was for rational beings to come on the scene who could turn around and then investigate the deeper structure of the cosmos. And by doing that, they could understand something of the mind that's behind it all. So we see features of the universe in general and planet Earth in particular, and I talk about both of these areas in my book, 
we see things about both that make our home planet and our universe incredibly hospitable, not just to our existence, the existence of life and life with a higher intelligence, but also to the scientific enterprise. Our planet has given us really important resources that without which we never would have been able to enjoy the scientific um, and technological existence that we do. And this coincides perfectly with the Christian doctrine of the Imago Dei or man being made in the image of God, that we're the crown of creation. And as such, we're endowed with these faculties that we need in order to not only have awareness of God, having moral awareness, but also having a higher rationality that allow us to explore God's handiwork. So I think this phrase cosmic resonance is perfect for describing this situation that we find ourselves in. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, St. Athanasius, he was a fourth century Alexandrian bishop. And I have to say my favorite Christian saint of all, he used this beautiful analogy that I think applies to this so beautifully. And it was what inspired me to use this word resonance that you often hear used in the context of music. So St. Athanasius said, like a musician who has tuned his lyre and by the artistic blending of low and high and medium tones produces a single melody. So the wisdom of God holding the universe like a lyre, adapting things heavenly to things earthly and earthly things to heavenly harmonizes them all and leading them by his will makes one world and one world order in beauty and harmony so i think that's beautiful i love that yeah that 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 is well well said we i don't think we write that way anymore which is a shame i know i know yeah so that was great that was a great insight and so well you you mentioned a couple of these so i'm sure people will be fascinated what are some in your mind some of the strongest indicators or signposts that say our universe you know is habitable or the planet that we happen to inhabit is habitable those kind of fine-tuning elements what are some some of those that you kind of cover in the book that you think are especially powerful you know i love the fact that we live on a planet that has the exact kind of atmosphere that we need not just for life for living things who have higher rationality but also the kind of atmosphere that we need for things that we take very much for granted, like the ability to have fire. And I talk about this in my book. Dr. Michael Denton is the scientist who has done the most work on this. The fact that we have the atmosphere necessary for fire that burns in just the right range of temperature, that we don't have runaway forest fires, but yet our fires burn hot enough that we can do things like smelting metals and we can have things like glass. If we did not have those types of things, technology would have never gotten off the ground. And it's not just fire that we need for those things. We also have to have the right kinds of natural resources in order to be able to smelt the metals in the first place, the iron ores and things like that in the crust of the earth. And then on top of all of that, we can look at the kind of light wavelengths, the light spectrum that's emitted by our sun. It just happens to be 
the wavelengths that penetrate our atmosphere without frying us to death, <laughs> which means it's conducive to habitability, but also to high definition vision. And also in the third place, to photosynthetic plants. So we have these amazing coincidences that are just right, not just for us to be able to live here, but for us to be able to also do science. And it's such an amazing coincidence to me. So that's just one of my favorite points from the book. No, no, I think those are great illustrations. You know, there, obviously there's a huge conversation around all of these topics, which, you know, and I know um, Steven Pinker wrote a recent book on the Enlightenment, and I heard a different interview with him where he was talking about, they were talking about the origins of science. And so say a little bit about that, because I know that's a special um, area of interest and study for you, but some of our secular friends would say, well, look, it's, science had to show up somewhere, right? So it's, that's not really an argument. But talk about why you think uniquely uh, that science arose where it did and when it did and kind of that history of ideas and thought. You know, it's really interesting to study, especially the events and the people surrounding the science, what we call the scientific revolution. Of course, it wasn't called that then. We didn't start using the term science until the 19th century. But back in the late 16th, early 17th century, when dramatic strides were being made towards the rise of what we now call modern science. It's interesting to read the original works of some of these great thinkers because all of them who you read shared this conviction, this deep-seated conviction that the universe is rational, that it's possible to investigate it. And what made the scientific revolution so extraordinary was that was when mathematics became thoroughly integrated with the idea of physical causes and effects in such a way that the deeper secrets of nature could then be uncovered. So at the very beginning of our interview, I mentioned that awesome quote by Galileo when he said that mathematics is the language in which God has written the universe. Um, and he said that with great conviction, because if you read his works, he is utterly amazed by how well we can take mathematics and apply it to things like physics. He did a lot of work, not just in astronomy, but he also did a lot of work in terrestrial physics and made great strides in that area. And then my great hero, Johannes Kepler, who doesn't get near enough attention compared to Galileo and the later Isaac Newton, what Kepler was so phenomenal with in his work was figuring out that there was this amazing resonance between mathematics and the natural world and the higher rationality of human beings. He's kind of a centerpiece in my book, but kind of in a, um, an unspoken way until you get to the chapter where I talk specifically about him. But Johannes Kepler was able to take mathematics and use it to unlock some really serious problems that were going on in cosmology during his time. This was when the big shift happened between the geocentric universe where everyone thought that the earth was at the center of all things and the sun and all the other known planets revolved around it. 
And Kepler was convinced that it wasn't that way, that the sun was at the center and the earth and all the planets revolved around the sun. But when you read his writing, he's convinced of the truth of his theory, not just because it lines up with astronomical observations better, but because he expected that the mathematics that had been used up to that point could be so much better. And the root of his conviction was God made the cosmos in a deeply rational way that we can come to understand through more elegant and simple mathematics. And he was also convinced that the mind of man could know something of the mind of God by doing this. So I guess the bottom line, what I'm getting at with all of this is that these great men of science They were operating with the conviction that there was mind behind the universe. And because of that, they could use their rational minds to employ tools such as mathematics to unlock all of its secrets. So they were operating from something that is very much a part of the Christian worldview, but certainly doesn't fit very well within the naturalistic worldview, because this is not a situation that you would expect if all of this is just an accident. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think I think the fact that the scientific enterprise arose in the soil of a Judeo-Christian worldview is a powerful signpost towards God's existence, and really that demonstrates Christianity resonates in using your, your term cosmic resonance. Those those things are really a powerful way to, to remind people that, because sometimes there's always this tension people feel. It's like, well, faith and science are at odds, but actually the more you think about these things, Actually, they fit together very well, and that's what I love about what you do in your book. Now, obviously, tons more in this book. There's so much we could talk about, but you know, some science and faith topics are contentious and even divisive within the church. How do you kind of approach tackling that, the different perspectives people have on origins, kind of in your book, Science in the Mind of the Maker, and maybe some wisdom in terms of how to approach those kind of conversations in the church? You know, I wanted my book to appeal to the broadest audience possible, so With that in mind, I thought this is a great way and a great time to just put forth my personal approach to discussing science and faith. And this is an approach that I have developed over the past two decades of trial and error, having conversations with non-believers and having conversations within the church as well. And I call my approach in the book mere creation. So it's very much in the spirit of C.S. Lewis's mere Christianity philosophy of apologetics. And what I do is I encourage my readers to take a giant step back from these contentious issues like the age of the earth and the theory of biological common descent and look at the question of a creator from a higher perspective, from a cosmic perspective, if you will. So I want us to get at the overarching question. And I think that overarching question is, do we have compelling reasons to believe that there's a mind behind the universe who's created us to be aware of him? I mean, that's the essential thing we need to know. And if we can make a strong case in the affirmative, and show that John 1, 1 through 3 is highly credible, that the word, the logos, the divine reason is responsible for creation, then we've reached this key stepping stone 
that we absolutely must have in order to get someone to John 1.14, which tells us that that word then became flesh and dwelt among us. So my conviction is that the central goal of what some people call scientific apologetics should be to help people become open to considering the existence of God and the person of Jesus Christ. And then the subsidiary issues, the in-house debates that Christians tend to unfortunately divide over can really become stumbling blocks, which is very, very, very unfortunate. Now, that's not to say that those secondary issues aren't important topics of discussion. Sure, we should talk about them and talk about them in the context of reconciling theology and science. But I think that we really are at a point where we need a revolution in the church in particular when it comes to having charitable attitudes towards people with whom we disagree on those subsidiary issues. So that's why I think my approach, which I'm calling mere creation, which we can all come together and unite on, is the best way to go, especially for the sake of evangelism. Yeah, I think that's a great approach. And the way I often talk about with our students is that God created is the primary and first question. And then how God created is a secondary question, which is an important one. But our culture is getting really stuck and hung up on the first question. So if everybody's moving so quickly to the second question, then we can't have the kind of conversations that they really need to have to do what you're talking about in your book, Science and the Mind of the Maker, to get them kind of exploring the right questions in the right order. So I appreciate your perspective on that for sure. What about, let's do this, probably kind of wrapping up in a second, but what of all the stuff you've written, what do you think is the most powerful evidence for you in your mind scientifically that points in the direction of a creator? You know, I am very, very partial to what's called the argument from reason that I mentioned earlier. And I go into this a little bit in the book, in the chapter that deals with the existence of the soul. So it is remarkable to me that we have the kind of higher rationality necessary to carry out the scientific enterprise. When you think on a deeper level, on a deeper philosophical level, which I discuss in that chapter, about what's necessary to make human rationality possible, I just do not see a way to reconcile what we observe with the idea of us being merely material machines, that we are just our brains and there is no such thing as a soul that can act as an agent to direct the train of our thoughts when we do things like higher mathematics. Um, so that's actually a large part of my dissertation, which I'm currently in the midst of discussing the history of this debate about the nature of man. And I think that it's really an ace in the hole for Christianity when it comes to this issue of human rationality and how we're able to exercise it in the project of science in particular. Um, that's just powerful to me. I agree. I think that's an amazingly powerful argument. And what's so fun about this conversation is there's so many good arguments in favor of God. And the argument from reason is such a good one. And, you know, the origin of the universe and the 
DNA and the fine tuning and the origin of the soul. I mean, there's so many good, and that's what's so fun, especially getting to do what I do in the summer. You know, we've got high school students here at Immersion or Propel, and we're talking about, hey, did you know there's actually good evidence for God? And here's a whole bunch of different kinds of things or with our fellows. And it's just fun to see. You can almost see their countenance change when they start to realize that they don't have to be ashamed of their worldview or that somehow science has disproven God. Or if you think really, really, really hard about something, you're going to find out something and the whole thing is going to be shown to be false or something like that. And I know you you get to teach on a regular basis. So I'm sure you see the same thing, that encouragement and really honestly joy, I think that comes from getting introduced to some of these things, which a lot more people need to get in their hands, which is why I love, I love your book, Science in the Mind of the Maker, What the Conversation Between Faith and Science Reveals about God. It's such a helpful book. And if you're listening right now and you want to take some next steps, this is a great book to check out. It's very accessible. You'll find some great insight here. And if you're wanting an ally along with your parenting and your your church about how to come alongside your teenager on how they can kind of own their own faith and grow deeper into the story that God's writing in their lives, we'd love to be an ally for you here at Impact 360. You can find out more about kind of what we offer at impact360.org. But Melissa, thank you so much for joining us today and thanks for writing this book but where can people find out more about you and kind of what you're up to these days so i do have a blog i don't get to update it nearly as much as i would love to right now because of being in my last year of school and teaching and homeschooling and all the millions of things i'm doing however they can find that at melissatravis.com um, and that's where I post announcements about articles that I publish and forthcoming books, um, forthcoming chapters and books and things like that. Well, awesome. Well, I will link to that in the show notes. And Melissa, thank you again for joining us today on the Impact 360 podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. For more information about our on-campus worldview and leadership experiences for students and our accessible online courses like Explore Truth and Explore the Resurrection, visit impact360.org. Impact 360 Institute. Know. Be. Live. Live.